Blog Talk Radio. Like always, 
on Africa on the Move. The way we get started with our party is to introduce to you our political panelists, the analysts for the day. We're going to do that. Then we're going to follow it up with the segment on what's going on in your community and the world. So right now, we'd like to introduce you to you, one of our panelists for the day, Brother Haki. We welcome you to Africa on the Move. Brother Africa, thanks, thanks for having me. <clears throat> My name is Haki from Shoki, and, you know, I'm all about institution building. And the reason why I think institution building is very, very important is one of the things that often we talk about, you know, <clears throat> social injustices that permeate society. But often what we don't talk about is, in fact, a situation where law becomes lawless. Uh, recently I read an article, and this was about uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. And he talked about the fact, he talked about demonstrably erroneous precedent. In other words, he talked about the fact that, you know, there should be no precedents. Uh, there should be no uh, hindsight in terms of making law. The law should be essentially made on the spot. And the whole idea in terms of precedent when you talk about law is that it gives some consistency. So you know exactly what the laws are, and you know in terms of what is expected of you as a citizen. You know what is expected of the bureaucracy. Uh, but when, when you talk about eliminating, <clears throat> when you talk about eliminating precedent, then essentially what you're talking about is lawlessness. So, for example, you have a situation where you know you have strict constitutionalists whose position is that um, poor people should not have access to education. In other words, their interpretation of the Constitution says that if you can't afford to pay for education, then you shouldn't have access to education. Uh, this notion, this notion that in fact that those in positions of power and wealth have a right to run the society based upon their needs, supersedes any rights that the masses of people have in the society. And so what Clarence Tomlin is doing essentially is double, he's doubling down on, on that sentiment. And so it's a very, very scary thing that when you have this, this black man in the Supreme Court talking about we can arbitrarily create law as we go along, speaks value sometimes in, in terms of the kind of faces, fascist uh, mindset that exists in the minds of so many people in this is the power in America. And I think one of the things we have to understand, if, in fact, law is lawless, then it seems to me it's coming upon the masses of people to formulate institutions in terms of safeguarding their well-being and to, to, to ensure their longevity in society. Because without some plan in terms of how you're going to navigate this insanity, then essentially what you're saying is that you, you're willing to succumb to, to the craziness that exists in society and lawlessness, which means that the, the longevity of human beings becomes, becomes a serious question. So I think it's important we have institutions in terms of, you know, dealing with a lot of these questions because, and unfortunately, a lot of us think that if we, in fact, allow uh, the bureaucracy, we allow politicians uh, to run things, then, in fact, they're going to do things in the best interest of the mass of people. And the thing is very, very clear is that when you look at the history in terms of the kind of oppression of people in the society, it's very, very clear that politicians in particular have no real interest in terms of the needs and aspirations of the masses of people. So it's coming upon the masses of people to determine what those aspirations are and to work and fulfill those by working together. So institutions become extremely important in terms of that, that endeavor. And Brother Africa, again, I want to thank you for allowing me on the show. All right, Father Brother Haki, we now bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. And I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism 
during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. I thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Okay, thank you, Brother Moses. Now, panelists, you know, our theme today is This is Your Future, Resistance Part 2. Before we talk about that, I would like to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about what's going on in your world community. There are so many things happening. So, Brother Haki, based on your world community, what's going on in your world community? Well, Brother Africa, I, I got to tell you, you know, in line to what I, I stated earlier, uh, one of the things I, I find very, very ironic and somewhat scary is that recently in Illinois, the presiding judge, uh, Michael Tommen, uh, he made a state law stating that children as young as 10 can be locked up. And he did this while denying precedent over local laws that are in opposition to his rulings. Now, this law ensures that the cradle, the prison pipeline, and in the process, let's get destruction on these children's lives. The fact that the state of Illinois refuses to facilitate alternatives to incarceration of children speaks volumes to the terms of the hostility imposed upon poor children and, by extension, hostility toward the plight of poor people generally. One has to ask, um, as a number of poor people proliferate in society as a result of tax policy and or trade, will the state have the means to incarcerate or an exponential increase of crime, or will it resort to more draconian measures or methods in terms of this fight against youth crime? I'm very much concerned about that because one of the things that, you know, we can separate the economy, you know, from the kind of crime that proliferates in society. And one of the things we in America, unfortunately, we have a um, huge disparity between the, the few who have against the masses who don't have anything. And so that disparity, is in fact, facilitates a lot of the crime that we see. Particularly when you, when you talk about young people, you talk about the immaturity of young people, you talk about lack of opportunities for young folks, then clearly we understand the propensity for crime is very, very real. And so one of my concerns is that, you know, when you get this overwhelming number of increasingly a number of young people who don't have access to food, who don't have access to shelter, who simply act to subsist, uh, the reality is that, you know, given those conditions, the young people are going to do what they got to do in terms of survival. And so I'm very much concerned that the systems respond to these young people who essentially, you know, um, uh, are without, without hope. What you're saying to them is that the only real solution for them is to lock them up. And in locking them up, which means that they have, don't have a future, which means that inevitably you create this large surplus of young people, you know, through, through the prison industrial complex who don't have any means, any possibility in terms of actually achieving in society. So the question is, what are you going to do with all these people that you create or just this groundswell of, 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 of um, indebted prisoners that you create as a result of your own sociopolitical policies in the state in this nation. So I'm very much concerned about in terms of the impact in terms of that mindset that says that children can't be children, that in fact, you know, that we must treat them as adults. I'm very much concerned about that. Of course, we understand the economic imperative in terms of the system because by locking up people, there's money to be generated in terms of locking up folks. But when you lock up children, I'm mean, asking, Poses a different paradigm, and that is namely, you know, that given the fact that they are children, they're going to be around for, around for a very, very long time. And so, even if you talk about incarcerating children for very long periods of time, ultimately these children are going to get out. And so, therefore, the questions and the, the original question, original problems that existed in terms of lack of opportunity, lack of jobs, lack of homes, lack of decent food, uh, quality education, those situations continue to persist. 
So locking up large number of children is not going to change those material conditions one iota. So I'm very much concerned about in terms of this propensity in terms of you know, this ruling in Illinois. Of course, this is a ruling not just Illinois, but the other, most of America, where the children are essentially expendable. And I'm very much concerned about this, I think, as a, as a thinking individual. I think we all got to be concerned about in terms of potential, in terms of you know, locking up a large number of, of children, you know, uh, in the criminal justice system. So I find that very, very extraordinary in terms of this willingness to just, um, just, just overlook the future of so many children in society. I think it's very, very on many levels, very problematic. Okay, brother Moses, what's going on in your world community? Well, we all know that the Supreme Court uh, is very negligent in, in terms of this gerrymandering uh, need to rule against gerrymandering, and they refuse to take up the case, and and uh, and so they let let stand this gerrymandering by you know one party in power drawing voting lines. That are favorable for its election, and uh, you know this is very disheartening. Uh, on a lighter note, you know the women's USA soccer team won the World Cup today, uh, and Stevie Wonder announced that he was going to need a, a kidney transplant. Um, that affects a lot of Black Americans, uh, uh, and uh, it's it's uh, unfortunate. Thank you. Well, you know, going back to your point, Brother Haki, where you talk about the Supreme Court, talking about justifying um, that you can lock up children in jail at age of 10, it seems like it's a consistency of their narratives when they look at, at the inception of this country. They did not really have respect for children and youth. Remember, there has been a struggle to create child labor laws because the system was exploiting children. They didn't see them as children, but treat them as grown human beings. And also, I think the point you raised about at 10 years old, if you can say you can lock children up at 10 years old, then the question becomes, how do you define what is a child? What are the characteristics of a child in terms of its behavior, its development, and some of the things they will likely do as part of the whole human factor of being children. Children will do things because they need some growth, development, and guidance. So I'm agreeing with you, and I'm just wondering, where are the psychologists, where are the educators, particularly the African educators, where are the sociologists, where are just decent human beings who are not in the forefront of fighting against these types of policies as relates to Known in war against society as a whole, but particularly wars against the youth. Your response, Brother Haki and Moses? Yeah, well, very good question, Brother Africa. Um, you know, um, there's no question. The, the history of, of children, as you alluded to, is very clear. Children have always been expandable in American society. It's very, very interesting. It's very, very interesting. I think we have to understand that the needs of the bureaucracy, the need of the ruling class, is much more important and the needs and aspirations of the masses of people in society. Uh, children, um, irrespective of the age, uh, the question for the ruling class is what can these children do for us? Well, right, there was a situation in this country where we had child labor laws and where children were ruthlessly exploited 
after many, many decades of struggle in terms of overcoming that obstacle, the fundamental premise in terms of, you know, the, the kids serving no real, no real value persisted among the ruling class. And that's very, very clear. So when you look at a situation where they're willing to lock up 10-year-olds, uh, you know, um, given the fact that you alluded to 10-year-olds by, by, by virtue of their emotional immaturity, you expect they're going to make some bad decisions. That's just, that's just the nature of growing up. In fact, one of the things, in fact, if, if, it, wasn't, if it wasn't for the fact that we attended segregated schools when we were younger, uh, a lot of us would have probably ended up in prison because we were at the point that, uh, you know, when we were 10 years of age, we did a lot of things that were ill-advised. I mean, we're children. But fortunately, we grew up in a segregated society in which the teachers, you know, African teachers understood, you know, that being a child that you can do some things that are, for lack of a better term, silly or stupid. Uh, and so as a consequence, those teachers were willing to work with us, and despite the problems that we dealt with, and as you know, in terms of being, you know, uh, marginalized individuals here in society, uh, they understand the implications in terms of all of these, these social and political policies adversely impact on their lives. And so we didn't have access to food, and so we understand, and the teachers understood that now having access to food is going to impact on your behavior. Not only is it going to impact on your behavior, to some extent it's going to impact on your ability to think. So the teachers understood that. And so, therefore, they were much more patient and much more guide, much more nurturing in terms of, you know, working with us because they understood all these obstacles that we had overcome. Now, we fast forward to the 21st century, and it's a different ball game. you got a lot of these teachers, you know, uh, in, in the schools, you know, who are caught up into that, 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 that the problem of class. And for them, you know, they see it simply as a class issue, which essentially what we're talking about is poor kids, and because they perceive themselves as not, you know, of that, of that particular stratum in society, they're not concerned about that. In other words, their kids are quote-unquote middle income or middle class, and so therefore the struggle of poor people is not their struggle. And so therefore when they, so when they see this, these behaviors manifest themselves in terms of, you know, um, rebelliousness, of people, kids being unruly, uh, of kids or even aggression or whatever it may be, uh, they have less understanding, less consciousness in terms of understanding what that kid is responding to and more likely to see that kid as simply a bad seed. So to some extent, the amount of propaganda in society in terms of the ability to persuade people, you know, that the problem is, 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 is poor folks, uh, also uh, has uh, manifested itself in the African community. So and consequently, as I said, and one of the things that when we talk about, you know, African teachers in the community, those who see these problems firsthand, you would think that these brothers and sisters be the money first to be the most revolutionary to stand up and say, listen, this has to come to a total halt. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is that they're becoming in, not, not only insensitive in terms of the plight of these poor children, but somewhat apathetic in terms of the plight of these poor children. Because in their minds, that, that, that plight of these poor children doesn't impact on their children. So I think it's a, it's a very self-defeating kind of mentality, but I think nonetheless is one that exists, which may explain, account for why there's so much inaction among you know, teachers, you know, social workers, sociologists, in the African community who know firsthand, and psychology as well, who understand firsthand the, the devastating impact the system has on the mind of children across the board. So I, 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 so I think that this kind of, um, this kind of antagonism, this kind of hatred of, of, of poor people, and particularly uh, uh, children, I think is something that's not going to come to, not going to be addressed until people in society, particularly those with some expertise in terms of human behavior, you know, get together and create organizations, keep institutions, to, to, to provide some kind of pushback in terms of this propensity, you know, to victimize children. So I think it's unfortunate this kind of thing happens, but it does. And, it's, and, and, and the problem is, Brother Africa, is that this kind of this propensity 
to lock up children is actually in, in increasing, it's proliferating. It's not decreasing, it's actually increasing. And that is very, very unfortunate. And it does have long-term repercussions, not just for those children, but for the community at large. So people have to begin to understand and put aside their class, their class interest and understand as a human being that if you don't fight back at some point, your child is going to be one of those kids, you know, who find themselves in very dire straits. Because keep in mind, you know, as capitalism progresses, one of the things we really understand that the level of disparity between the have and have must continue to grow, which means this once promising middle class that exists in America is now just a slither of American society. So inevitably, these teachers' children also will be impacted, you know, by these benevolent signs of policies that adversely impact on the minds of young people. So it seems to me that people have to understand, quite frankly, you know, that this is a system that's, that's geared toward chaos, thrives on chaos. And so if they can facilitate that chaos by destroying children's lives, by demonizing children and making them somehow, somehow look like they're uh, less than um, deserving, then we have to understand that that, that, that propensity uh, doesn't stop simply with, with, uh, with poor children but continue to expand. And this is a problem that we have to understand. And we have, in order to do that, we have to overcome this nature of class. And it's a very difficult thing to do, but it's something we have to do because it affects us all on one level or another. Brother Moses, your response to why is it that this system chooses to not allow children to be children? Why there is not no outright serious resistance against this whole concept of locking up children, putting them in jail at the age of 10? Your response, Brother Moses. Yeah, capitalism desires workers to exploit. And um, children have always been a uh, 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 a desire of theirs to because they can play them less and uh, they can exploit them uh, uh, through their labor and uh, so this has always been a problem we down through the years historically there's been a struggle to get children work hours uh, off off the uh, the the, the to, to try to lessen the work hours and, and eliminate uh, them as workers, uh, and and to, to allow them to go to school and learn and and uh, grow up. And so this this situation has has always been one of the contradictions of capitalism. And and so we today we need we need to allow children time to be children, the time to to make mistakes. And to grow up, uh, to learn, and uh, study, and 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 become uh, good citizens. But you know, the capitalism does not does not see the need for all that. Uh, it's all it's only sees them as workers to be exploited, and uh, and this is a problem. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, what else to say at the moment? Thank you, brother. You know, brother Africa. One one of the things you know, I, I think it's just from a systemic point of view. I think we have to understand that you know, you know, incarcerating children uh, to some extent contributes to the uh, instability of the system, and then we have to understand its proper context. One of the things is that you know you got this increasing number of, of young children with no hope who resorted to all kind of, let's say, what they perceive as 
antisocial behavior. Well, uh, the thing is that we have to understand that as that number of children grows, it becomes a real problem in terms of the system's, you know, functioning. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, when we, we talk about the overall cost of crime, one of the things that are very clear, you know, uh, as, as, as human beings, particularly as young children, uh, one of the things is that, you know, your impulsivity is something that's very much, you know, part of being a young person. And so, therefore, we can simply expect if you don't give children alternatives, then if the only alternative for them in terms of survival uh, is pervading, you know, you know, participating in crime, then I think that, you know, one of the problems is that it creates a real problem for the system. Because what happens is that ultimately those people in positions of power become threatened because they, they, see, they see the crime and, 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 and they, they recognize the crime, uh, but at the moment it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to their, their, particular, their particular life because they're far far removed from the situation. But as the number of kids who increasingly are negatively impacted, you know, by all kinds of social economic factors in terms of the inability in terms of food and shelter and, and, and those kinds of things, uh, ultimately those people who are very rich also would be privy to the kind, same kind of antisocial behavior among children that's prevalently among prevalent, prevalent, excuse me, prevalent among people or poor children, you know, throughout the country. So I think that when we talk about the kind of instability we talk about to the system, I think one of the things that the people in position of power are going to do, they're simply going to move in terms of to, and to, to address that. And their way to address that is not to create the conditions that are favorable in terms of bringing up more healthy, you know, more positive young people. They're more, much more inclined to much more draconian measures in terms of more incarceration. In other words, if it comes down to a choice between creating a just and harmonious and fair system versus a system which is detrimental, cruel, and unjust, their position is that we want to create a system that's detrimental, cruel, and unjust. And so if, you, and if, and so if that is their mindset, if that's what they think is the rational way in terms of proceeding, in terms of addressing, you know, youth crime, then clearly the number of youth who are, who, who are suffering out here, uh, we can anticipate that the amount of crime, of course, is going to increase. Even if it doesn't increase, the perception is going to increase because what happens is that media being what the media is, it takes the situation, blows out of proportion, makes it look like it's, it's everywhere. And in the process, you know, creating all young children, all poor children with a single brush. In other words, they creating the perception that all poor people are, are in fact, criminal-minded or prone to criminality. In fact, you know, one of the things I often say, and I think it's important to point out, is that when we talk about criminality, we have to be clear that we talk about the real criminals. We're talking about people with wealth, power, and money who commit crimes anyway, happen to be the wealthy. But these criminals control the media, and so therefore they control the narrative. So their criminality is never on, on display. But the moment a poor kid steal a bag of potato chips, they are, it is highlighted, creating the perception that, in fact, all poor kids you, you throughout society uh, uh, stealing potato chips, you know, uh, throughout the U.S. So it creates this 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 this, this, this archetype in terms of you know clarifying defining who our young people are, and that's precisely what they want to do. But we're getting back to the question in terms of instability. My concern is that given the the the, the hostile attitude towards young people, and given the potential in terms of increase for youth crime in society, given the lack of opportunities, I'm very much concerned in terms of these young people being used as a pretext or a justification to not only incarcerate people across the board, irrespective of their age, but actually intern people. So when we look at the situation in, in, on the borders of Mexico, we see the p- people in cages. 
it seems to me, you know, that this is a sort of precursor in terms of what's really going on in society. Those people in positions of power, that few cabal individuals who actually run this, this country, actually want a situation in which, you know, um, large-scale, large you know, incarceration of people or internment of people, if you will, is preferable to actually a more just and harmonious society. So I think we have to be very concerned that these, these children are just scapegoats for a much broader policy, which is antagonistic toward the interests of humanity generally. So I think we have to be very concerned about, the, you know, the, 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 the manifestation of these kind of policies by the ruling class and what it means to society or humanity in general. You know, Brother Haki, I was going down that road. As we talk about the attitudes of how this society views children, and I can see that continue, continuation, you just mentioned it, about how they're dealing with people on the border, on the southern border now. You talk about 10 years old, they're actually locking up and have babies in, in these little prison cells and have no regards for their well-being. And remind me a lot of from my understanding of history, um, sort of what, what, what enslavement was like, where you just put people in small spaces and caged them in and care very little about them, no more than other than if they can get to a certain destination so you can release them and make them work free for you. you know, I'm just wondering why, you know, in terms of saying what's going on on the southern border, if they're going to hit home, hit home to many, many people, particularly the African community, in terms of saying, how do you take these people, separate them from their parents, these children from their parents, <laughs> take human beings, have them, have them bundle all up like pieces of sardines, and, and, and say it's cool, don't have no problem with that, and 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 you allow them to get away with that. How can this? How can this exist? Upward, what, is, what does it really say about the value of American values? Just by how long these conditions exist, they just celebrate the so-called the Four July Day, the other day, and tell them how they're proud to be a so-called American. What is it about American that make anyone to be proud? Of looking at the behavior, the historical behavior, or how they view human beings in particular, and particularly youth and children in, in, in general. Uh, Brother Moses, you respond to that. You know, they're, they're locking up these children at the border. Uh, that's, that's definitely an a, a undesirable condition. And, and um, there is the, the courts, so where there have been cases, uh, the courts have ruled against that, but they, they, they don't enforce it. They have no, they, they were, were not supposed to kept over 30 days or something. Uh, they're, they have no teeth in in the law that uh, that puts anybody in jail for violating the law. Uh, the the Trump administration is getting this way uh, uh, de facto, uh, and uh, and it's it's just a deplorable situation. Uh, uh, there isn't enough protest about about this condition. Uh, in my in my estimation, uh, 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 this is a terrible terrible situation that we need to we need to address it. Thank you. But you know, but you know, brother, but you know, brother Africa. You know, one of the things 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat, I'm somewhat pleased to, 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 you know, to understand, is that increasingly more and more people as they begin to dissect, to, be, to really deconstruct, you know, American history, and to look at the policies and institutions of America, a lot of people are not very, very happy. For the first time, I'm thinking in U.S. history, increasingly more and more people begin to understand America for what it truly is. For the longest time, people have been behind, behind blinders. They have this assumption of America that doesn't exist. It only exists in their heads, only exists in their minds. But increasingly, more and more people begin to understand just how ruthless, just how uncaring, just how criminal-minded uh, the society is. And I think a lot of people have very, very turned off by that. And that's, in fact, when you look in terms of these so-called 4th of July um, celebrations, so-called celebrations, uh, they had very few people who actually attended that. And most of the people who attended that were all connected, you know, to the White House. Uh, they were all Republicans. Uh, and so that speaks values in terms of people's re- recognition, you know, that, you know, this, this whole question around 4th of July, there was nothing in terms of addressing the real history in terms of America. And so I think that as people begin to unravel the real history in terms of what is America, and they look at the southern border and look at what's happening to Mexican Mexican people, not just the Mexican people, but the Central American people. When you look at that and see what's happening to them, I mean, it, it, it brings to mind this whole question in terms of the maltreatment of African people when they first brought their ancestors over here to America. Similar kind of things where children were separated from their families. Uh, they were um, in, in enslaved in small space and, and put in place in small spaces. Um, you know, um, without access to, 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 to hygiene and, and those kind of things, uh, those kind of things that matter. Um, you know, recently they had a situation where the, the young man was acquitted in which the federal government tried to bring charges against him for simply providing water and food for the, for the for immigrants seeking to come to the United States. Now, if you talk about being anti, anti-humane, then how anti-humane can you be to actually criminalize something, something as decent and, and human as being concerned about another human being, that all you all you want to do is provide them water and food to eat, you know, at a very 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 fundamental human level. The mere fact that the federal government went after this individual, for, you know, for doing that, speaks violence in terms of the kind of uh, indifference, or, or the kind of, if you will, the kind of hatred um, of, of of humanity that exists in the minds of so many people in society. But I'm, I'm like I said, I'm glad that at least I, I, the perception is the perception is at least is that increasingly, you know, more and more people are beginning to see America for what it is in terms of policies. And there is hope that as increasingly as more and more people begin to see it for what it is, then there's always the possibility that, that you can change this insanity to something that's more sane, something more humane. So um, 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 so I've been reading about a lot about in terms of groups around the country in terms of, um, you, know, you know, their desire, you know, to overturn the system in terms of being into being a system which is humane, uh, it's a system which is more holistic, a system which is anti-exploitation. And I'm mindful of the fact, Brother Africa, I'm, I'm not naive. A lot of times when you read these articles, a lot of these are placed by the CIA because they do it for a particular reason. They want people to, to, to perceive that things are changing when, in fact, things are not changing. So I, I understand that. So when I talk about, you know, my encouragement in terms of reading these articles, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not, I'm not, it's not a, a wholesale and, uh, um, it's not a, a, a total uh, uh, um, applause in terms of the, 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 the kind of uh, the kind of things that I read in terms of the positivity that I'm seeing, but at least it's a, it's a, for me it's a recognition that it's, it's possible that people can begin to see, you know, that it, that can be a different world. You know, uh, like I said, I'm not naive. I know a lot of these articles that they put into the, into in online. 
they put it in the papers and so forth and so on. A lot of it is there specifically for propaganda purposes. So they want to create a perception that things are changing. So if people think that everything is fine, and people say, well, I don't need a meeting involved because everything is fine. People are changing, so everything is fine. So I do realize that it's one of the ploys that they use in terms of, you know, deceiving people in terms of preventing people from actually participating in struggle for change. I do understand that. But it does, but, it, but nonetheless, it does underscore the possibility, you know, that, you know, that, 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 that if more people increasingly understood, you know, the nature of U.S. foreign policy and understood that there are alternatives to the U.S. foreign policy, or U.S. or U.S. government policy generally, then there's a possibility to bring about a new paradigm. So I think that's important. So I'm encouraged by the fact, at least, you know, for them to even, if they're printing this, you know, you know, uh, you know, surreptitiously, or for the sole purpose of tricking people, for deceiving people, uh, at least the perception out there that, that that another reality does exist. So in that sense, people should be applauded uh, in terms of at least um, the possibility you know, that alternative could exist in a society which is not, not indicative of the kind of greed and avarice and hatred and, 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 and manipulation that's so much part of the United States government. Uh, so, so, and I haven't said that, uh, Brother Alfred, I'll just, I'll just close with that. To our listening audience, you are listening to Africa on the Move. Our theme today is This is Your Future Without Resistance, Part 2. Right now, we are under the segment, What's Going On in Your World in the Future. If you are listening to this program, you have anything that you would like to share as it relates to what's going on in your world and the community, please do so by dialing 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Before we go into the station break, Brother Moses, you talk about earlier in terms of what's going on in your world community about the announcement that Stephen Wonder made about he is going to have a kidney transplant, I believe, in September. Now, one of the things I'd like to call to attention to our listening audience is I find something real interesting, and I'd like to get your response to it. And the listening audience might be listening. Based upon the stats and the numbers I recently um, view, it states that African people in this country make up less than 12 to 13%. But when you talk about all of these dialysis, people on dialysis, we make up about 85%. Now, something is wrong with the number. When you only know more than 13 to 12% of the population, but you're making up 85% of dialysis. When you go to the doctor now, for some reason or another, seeing like our community having a high rate of what they call a kidney disease, but they really can't tell you. What is a kidney disease? How do you get it, and how do you cure it? So I'm wondering, what is going on in the medical field as relates to the health and well-being of our people? Brother Hackett, your response to that first, and then Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your response first. Well, this this kidney situation is the epidemic in the black community. Uh, uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, uh, enough about the the doctrine uh, and medical uh, knowledge of of your the kidney and and why why uh, it's, it's it's such a situation uh, uh, evidently because of diabetes and high blood pressure hypertension um, these are factors that are that are 
make black, black African people more susceptible. Uh, uh, I don't know. And then the, the waiting list is a whole, whole another issue in itself. But uh, uh, it's definitely a problem. Uh, uh, and we, I, the, medis, the medical knowledge behind it uh, needs to be more disseminated throughout the community so there's a better understanding of, of what the problem is and how it can be avoided. Uh, uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Brother Aki, in my statistical class, my stat class, they taught us anytime when you have a high degree of a particular percentage or a particular group of people, and they represent a small portion of that got the overall community. When you see a particular phenomenon that real large affect that community, it is something that's not organic. It's something that seems that we have some kind of uh, um, creation or being, or being designed to um, to occur or behave in a manner. Your response to why is it there's a high level of African people in this country on dialysis? We mean less than 10 to 12% of the population. And when you look at the dialysis places, most of them are owned by doctors who treat you for the same disease that you come to, then send you to that facility till you make more money off of you. Is this for biological yeah. welfare? Well, you know, you know, uh, you know, Brother Africa, that's 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 one of those mysteries in which you know I've been trying to I've been trying to ascertain for a long, long time in terms of understanding precisely what's 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 going on behind the scene to justify thirteen percent of the population, you know, constituting eighty percent of all dialysis treatment in America. There's something fundamentally going on, and it seems to me the fact that there is no outcry from those positions of power speaks volumes. Because one of the things, but in America, when we talk about uh, opioid uh, epidemics, is the epidemic proportion among you know white Americans. And in fact, there's been all kind of concern, it's expressions of concern, in terms of you know reducing opioid you know uh, exposure, uh, particularly when it comes to medical care, because that's a really concern in terms of the health of white America. And so, therefore, so it's been an issue, and so it's one of the driving uh, forces in terms of, um, you know, uh, decision as to whether or not to administer, you know, opiates to people you know, for pain. Uh, the mere fact that they're concerned about opiates but not concerned about uh, dialysis among African people speaks values in terms of perhaps there is something behind the scenes that's going on. And, and, and one of the things, you know, there's so many public factors that contribute in terms of, uh, you know, this propensity for African people to have problems with their kidneys. Uh, you know, clearly, you know, um, diet maybe have a big has a big part to do with it. Uh, but, if in, but if in fact, if it's diet, then the question is, what specifically are you eating that is, that is responsible for in terms of uh, damaging your kidney? Uh, is it the quality of water you consume? Because most of our people tend to be concentrated in urban areas, and so the quality of water maybe maybe an issue. But of course, that that kind of information is very very well guarded, and so even information you publicly get from utility companies in terms of accessing the, the quality of the water is very, very suspect. So they don't give you the real numbers in terms of the quality of the, of the water. So it's one of those kind of things in which you, you know, in, in, inevitably you wait for those the people in, in, in those bureaucracies, you know, who have access to the real inside numbers to actually get to a point in life where they're ready to retire or they're ready to, uh, or, or they're close to dying because of some ailment 
that they figure they're going to tell people the truth in terms of what's going on in terms of the water that's pumping to the homes of, you know, people who, people who reside in urban areas. Uh, I don't know, Brother Africa, it's a very complex question. I think one thing is very, very clear. Uh, you know, the mere fact that there's so much science in terms of this epidemic, the more African people in terms of kidney problems, speaks values in terms of, you know, some type of complicity, uh, some, some kind of complicity activity going on with respect to, you know, why so many African people have these kidney problems. And you're absolutely right. And you, when you talk about the fact that doctors, in fact, are making lots and lots of money by owning these places, it's very, very interesting. Uh, these places, these places open up. I mean, you have in, in one city, you have you have between ten and twelve, you know, different facilities, and just in one city. I mean, the business, big, big business, and and, and 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 so it seems to me that just on the terms of the, um, just in terms of human productivity, uh, when you got this large number of people who were impacted by kidney problems, then certainly it impacts on their ability in terms of being productive in the workplace. And so that alone seems to me should garner some type of a concern from those people in positions of power to say, wait a minute, why is the situation persist in the African community and let us get to the bottom exactly precisely what's going on? So I, I think, Brother Africa, it's one of those questions I continue to look at and um, try to figure out what the hell is going on here, why this large proliferation. Uh, you know, but during the interim, I think the best we can do in terms of trying to mitigate this, this thing of this kidney is, I think, one of, the things, one of the things we have to do, certainly we have to be careful about in terms of what we consume uh, I think certainly we got to be careful about consumption of alcohol. And I think certainly we got to be concerned about careful in terms of level of stress that um, that we'll um, we continue on a daily basis. So I think there's so much that has to be done in terms of you know to sort of protect ourselves against kidney kidney you know these kidney uh, kidney problem epidemic. Uh, but I, I but I think um, you know um, I think. It's going to take um, it's, it's going to t- take a lot more research and try to figure out precisely what's going on, because the information that um, provides us some clarity in terms of why this is happening is very safeguarded. So it's going to take a lot more research in terms of getting at what's really going on in terms of propensity. So clearly, it's, it's a real problem, and I don't and it's not going to actually increase. And so, it's a real problem. Well, before we go to our station break, as we talk about these subjects, I just want to again remind this audience that it seems to um, be a reality that they have taken our common sense away from us because when you go to your medical doctors and you ask them what is a kidney disease, they can't really tell you. And if it is a disease, then you would think a disease has a cure, but yet they tell you no cure for it. So, you know. I don't understand it, you know. The capitalists like to confuse the people, but I'm not confused. Something's clearly wrong with that picture. But anyway, on that note, we are talking about what's going on in our world community. Right now we're going to pause for the calls, take a station break. When we come back, you're welcome to join us by dialing 323-679-0841. You are listening to Africa on the Move.
Africa on the move. That's right, restored them from Africa and brought to the Americas. Fighting upon arrival and still fighting for our survival. We'd like to welcome you to call in at 323-679-0841. If you have any views, questions, or comments, please hit 1. We acknowledge your last four numbers. Right now, we're going to make our transition right now to address our theme tonight, which is, This is Your Future with Our Resistance Part 2. Remember, this is your future we are talking about. And if there are no resistance, then you can't expect no change. We'd like to direct your attention to a real interest article that was published from Counterpunch on June the 7, 2019, titled, Travel to Cuba, Fall Victim to John Bolton's Wrath. And in this article, it raised some issues in terms of U.S. motivation to undermine and try to overthrow the government of Cuba. Let me just give you a little bit of paraphrase, a little bit of backdrop. On, uh, on the nature of this particular article. We're going to have a discussion with our panelists, and we welcome you to call in and share your views and perspectives. They talk about John Bowden hates the government of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, calling them the three stooges of socialism, and is determined to use his time as national security advisor to eliminate the vestiges of socialism in our hemisphere. He has openly stated that the 1823 Monroe Doctrine is live and well, convening that the United States would dedicate the terms of the governance in the Western Hemisphere by military force, if necessary. Furious that he has made, he has been unable to successfully orchestrate a coup in Venezuela, both his land lashing out at Cuba, explicitly punishing the nation for its support of Venezuela, President Maduro. The travel restriction announced on June 4 represents another page from Bolton regime change playbook. Panelists, first of all, when did this guy come for John Bolton? I thought he was dead and gone. Who is Brother John Bolton, Brother Hackey? <laughs> yeah, he, he he's one of those right-wing right nuts, uh, you know, that's been in the pipeline for some time. Uh, he's, 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 I mean, he's, he's perfect for, he's suited for uh, the likes of someone like um, the Orange Menace in the White House. Uh, he's very, very reactionary. This guy is, 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 is very, very, he's, um, he's very psychotic. I mean, there's, there's no other way to put it. I mean, the notion that, that, that people have a fundamental right to exist is something to him was very, very foreign. He doesn't understand what it means when you talk about people having a right to exist. To him, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. For him, people are, people are here um, to be exploited. People are here to be used. That's the people we value. And to the extent that human beings have any value, it's only those among the ruling class. Everybody else is subject to, should be subject to exploitation. And so for any government and individuals who dare stand up and say that we're going to protect humanity, that we're going to create systems which protect humanity, it rubs them the wrong way. So when you start to think about it, clearly in terms of just, just in terms of ration, being rational, uh, one of the things that when you create a situation in which you justify the humiliation and subjugation of, of large number of people, uh, do you really think that those people uh, who are subjugated are going to in, in embrace that subjugation over the long term? At some point, they come to the realization, you know, that the subjugation is unbearable and they rise up. So it seems to me that, you know, <clears throat> his desire in terms of showing the oppression of people 
as a long-term strategy, it seems to me it should be some, not only ironic, but somewhat irrational. But I think that, <clears throat> but, but let me say one other thing, Brother African, I think this is important. <clears throat> I think one of the things is that he talks about the uh, the truck, the truck of, of uh, the, the three, um, what do you call them, the three clowns or the three? Um, the three stooges. Three stooges. Three stooges. Three stooges. Three stooges. Three stooges. <laughs> the three stooges. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I got a, I got a different definition in terms of the three stooges. I see the three stooges as the U, the U.S., uh, Israel, and uh, Saudi Arabia. And and well, let me say three. Well, those three in addition to three A, which is the U.K. Uh, <clears throat> I see those. <clears throat> I see particular embassies. As, as I see them as, as stooges. Uh, one of the things they're they're con, they're con, convinced they're given their powerful political uh, propaganda uh, apparatus that somehow they can continue to feed people indefinitely. They haven't learned anything from history. No one stays ignorant forever. Eventually, all people come to the realization that there, there is a different realities. So, despite your propaganda <clears throat> machine, you know, at some point it won't work. In fact, one of the reasons why you have such such, you know, propping up the right-wing government throughout the world has left to do with the fact that increasingly more and more people around the world come to the realization that they want a different paradigm in terms of how human society exists. Uh, this whole this whole notion in terms of a few people exploiting many uh, is coming to an end, and increasingly more and more people begin to see their own subjugation and begin to fight against it. And so, therefore, as a means in terms of pitting one, people against one another, uh, they realize in doing so that ensures them give them some breathing room. Of course, it's a short-range strategy because ultimately uh, people are going to, after they, they fight each other, they begin to see that fighting each other, killing each other, you know, poor people killing poor people, they begin to understand that, you know what, all this killing other poor people has does nothing to contribute to a better life for me. And they begin to realize who the real enemy is. So I think the three stooges of, of Western imperialism, the U.S., Israel, and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, I think that uh, increasingly more and more people begin to understand and see them Precisely for what they are and who they are. And Brother Moses, your response? Yes, um, you know uh, this Bolton character, as, as was stated, is is a sick puppy. I mean, uh, obviously he's he's Trump's Trump's lackey. Uh, Trump is is uh, is ultimately the the head of the government and. and uh, it's his his ideas that uh you know the stamp stamp out socialism wherever it it, it it can be found is part of his agenda and uh, and uh, just the the trucker that they they call uh, Nicaragua Cuba Venezuela is a is a progressive unit of 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 the uh, Western Hemisphere that's a progressive unit, and uh, and and you know sooner or later people will see the government for what it is. The people that celebrated the Fourth of July and they don't see the the institution, the organization, the the government, the ongoing entity that that has been been historically active. You know they don't they don't analyze and see. How it's been working and what it's been doing, and and so, you know, you know, this this mentality is is uh, consistent with the Boltons and the Trumps, and in in, in in that uh, 
it, it makes it complicit for them to be able to do whatever they want to do because there is ignorance about about the institution of the United States of America and, and what it stands for, what what it has stand for, and what it continues to stand for. That is a profit-driven, imperialist country uh, and an uh, organization run by a ruling class that that, uh, that serves the interests of the ruling class, that, that 1% that tends to dominate the world. And... Uh, and, you know, this, you know, sooner or later people have to wake up. They have to get educated. They have to see things for what they are. And uh, it's it's a lot easier said than done. Uh, but this is what we have to do. Thank you. You know, Brother Africa, you know, you know, you know, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things I, I find somewhat ironic is that, they often say, the ruling class often say, capitalism doesn't work. It's a bad system. Well, if it doesn't work with such a bad system, then why the hell do you continue to attack it every time someone around the world try to implement it? Apparently, it's not as bad as you think it is. In fact, when you talk about the, the top leading countries uh, in the world in terms of health and, and the helping this of their people, it's always those social, those, those, those social, uh, those, those socialist systems, countries in Scandinavia consistently. And the U.S. is way down, way down to near the bottom. So it's interesting, you know, that uh, you know when when people, you know, in in, in the Western Hemisphere, try to impose socialism, that you have someone like this guy talking about the fact that giving the Monroe Doctrine that you don't have a right in terms of innovating the system, which is going to make sure that your people have food, shelter, quality education. It's ironic. It seems to me that if, if you know, as as a, as a thinking human being, that any time you know you prefer a system in which people don't have access to food, shelter, and quality education, then what kind of system is that? Uh, and, and the notion that there's some kind of mobility in terms of avarice, uh, individualism, selfishness, that somehow that's something to, praise, to be praised, seems to me it's ironic because when you think about human beings as, social, as a social organism, the mere fact that you can take a social organism and tell them, no, 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 you can't be social, you got to be predatory which goes against the instincts in terms of human beings in terms of, you know, in terms of, you know, to, to, as being a social organism. And you talk about, you talk about the, very basic, the, very basic, the very basic fact, uh, the very basic fact is that when you talk about um, the family structure, so you, when you talk about the family structure, what are you talking about? You're talking about social cohesion. You talk about people working together in terms of providing for another to ensure that the members of the family get what they need in terms of survival. That's all it is. It's just socialism. That's all. That's what a family is. So for a system to come along and say, no, 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 you can't do that, that you must be like us, that you must be selfish, predatory, uh, uh, vindictive, you must do all those, you know, that these, these kind of values are what human beings should ascribe to be, uh, rolls a lot of people the wrong way. Most of us understand that any kind of system that says that a few people have a right to control the resources of the world at the expense of the many of the people of the world is fundamentally in, in, in conflict in terms of with, 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 with human, uh, human organism as a social being. So it's, 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 it's extraordinary that these people actually try to push this and that if, for people who don't believe this notion, notion that individual is the highest aspiration of a human existence, those people who actually believe that working together is the best possible system, 
that these people have the audacity to say, we're going to attack you, we're going to destroy you militarily, we're going to engage in all kinds of criminal acts, whether it be embargoes or whatever they are, and we're going to do all of this in terms of preventing you from actually being humane. I find it ironic. So anybody who embraces capitalist mindset, it seems to me it's indefensible. I mean, if anybody can defend that, you know, I have yet in all my years to hear anybody actually in a cogent sense be able to defend this insanity that is known as capitalism. Because it's, 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 it's not only anti-humane, it's anti-irrational. It's insane. It's crazy. So it's good to see countries like Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, who are saying, listen, we want to go a different way. We want a different paradigm. We don't want business as usual. We want to go in a different direction. It's good to see that. And it's good to see Yugoslavia historically, you know, say, listen, we want a society, and they had a society in which its people were, its people were educated, housed, fed, you know, people, you know, and, and, and doing very, very well. Well, the West simply couldn't abide by that, and so they destroyed Yugoslavia. You know, even when you talk about Iraq in terms of the socialism that, that Saddam Hussein practiced, in terms of making sure his people have access to education, uh, education, uh, housing, uh, food, and all those things in terms of being the best they can be. Uh, as a consequence, they had one of the best economists in the Middle East. Of course, the U.S. and the Western nations couldn't abide by that, so what they do, they destroyed it. So it seems to me that at some point the people in the Western countries got to start saying, damn, this is crazy. You know, you, this is crazy. And I think by our silence, I think we, 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 we're, we're somewhat complicitous in terms of this whole quick insanity because if we don't say anything, we don't stand up and demand a different paradigm, then what, essentially what we're saying is that we embrace and we support the current insanity that known as capitalism. So we have to stand up and say, listen, this, thing, this system by no such imagination uh, epitomizes the, 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 the rightful concerns of humanity. In fact, it's anti-humane. And so, therefore, we prefer a system which is humane because not only economically can you achieve more in terms of when you share, but you create a much better, more cohesive society when you, when you share. Uh, so it seems to me that the people in the ruling class understand damn well that capitalism, given a chance to, to excel, no one is going to overtake capitalism. This is the reason why they viciously attack anybody in the world, I don't care where they are, Maurice Bishop in the little, in the little country, uh, in this little, little tiny country in, in the Caribbean. He was attacked, Grenada. He was attacked. He was attacked. A tiny nation with a head of what, about 200,000 people was attacked simply because he tried to initiate socialism in a little tiny country of 200,000 people. He was attacked. So clearly, you know, the ruling class understand the power of socialism, which is why they attacked it so precipitously. And I think it's important that the people in these Western societies understand, you know, that they continue to get a short end of the stick. And nothing's going to fundamentally change in terms of getting a short end of the stick until they stand up and say, we, we declare our, our right in terms of, you know, a much bigger piece of the pie. But it's going to take struggle. It's not going to be done simply because it's the right thing to do or it's moral. Okay, to listen to the audience, this is Africa on the Moon. We're discussing the theme tonight, This is Your Future Without Resistance, Part 2. Uh, coming up shortly, we hope that we have with our sister Izeli Danto come on. We're going to get an update and talk a little bit about Haiti. So, Sister Izeli, if you're listening on the phone, please hit 1 so we can identify your number. Please hit 1. But anyway, let's continue. Um, you know, I can read the second paragraph, and I'd like to get y'all to respond to this because, Brother Hackey, you sort of mentioned it just recently in terms of maybe their response to their fear of socialism. And 
I can read this paragraph and I can make a statement. I'd like each each of y'all respond, you and Brother Moses. Let's talk about the reason for the so-called restriction, okay? It said the new travel restrictions will severely limit the ability of Americans to travel to Cuba. The restrictions prohibit groups educational trips to Cuba known as people to people. Travel as well as passengers, vessels, recreational vessels, and private aircraft. These bans go to heart of the Cuban economy, which has become increasingly dependent on tourism. That's that. That's that spin on it. But one of the things I actually see myself in terms of one of the motivations, maybe why they now are trying to encourage people not to go to Cuba, is because. Their earlier game plan didn't work. They were thinking if they could flood a lot of so-called Americans in Cuba, that the Americans would come and bring their ideas and tendencies and confuse the people and try to tell the people to change that system. That system would be better. I think they found out, Brother Haki and Brother Moses, that what has happened was instead of the Americans coming, so-called Americans coming to Cuba, trying to change the Cuban way of life, it's it's reversed. Many Americans go to Cuba and they begin to see now that there is an alternative. So therefore now, since they lose in that propaganda wall, they can tell the people they no longer can go. Y'all respond to that possibility or that narrative of what, what has taken place and taking place when so-called Americans go to Cuba that are more influenced by the Cuban society than the Cubans are by American society? I think you're right. I think you're right. I think Barack Obama's uh, rationale was that, or at least his reasoning was that if, if you know, if you if you open Cuba up to, to to tourism, that they get the opportunity to contrast their lives with the lives of American, and therefore they would conclude that America is a much better place to be in terms of in terms of systems. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. What happened was that you're right. I think that once the, once the, increasingly as more and more Americans got there. And being to see the, the the kind of vitality of the of the system, in terms of the love and the, and, 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 the, and the empathy among the people, uh, it sort of shocked them. They didn't they couldn't quite understand what is it about you know what is it about this country in which it allow people to work together. Uh, so 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 I think they begin to understand that begin to reason, you know that there is a system in place and the system does in fact institutions that systems create does in fact impact on the way people think. And so, therefore, they begin to understand that if Cuba could do this in terms of creating a, a holistic society in which people care about one another, they share and they take care of one another, then why can't America do the same thing? And so, therefore, they came away from Cuba with a different idea in terms of what socialism is all about. So America realized that in the ruling class, we were, 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 I mean, they were irate. But the whole point was that, you know, we strategically, our thing was, you know, in terms of was to uh, impact Cuba. Well, it didn't turn out that way. It turned out the Cubans impacted Americans, and so therefore, as a such, so therefore, this strategy had to be abandoned. And so, uh, one of the reasons why um, the Electoral College chose Trump was because the ruling class, those who truly control the political process in America, understood that we have to change things back to where we were previously. Because if we don't, increasingly more and more Americans become enlightened, and and to the extent that Americans become more enlightened means that our ability to control them, our ability to manipulate American people become that much more difficult. So we have to get rid of this nonsense about people traveling to Cuba because we don't want them to see the other side of the, of, of the coin. We want them to think that this is the best country in the world 
and that no country can, can beat it. So Cuba, Cuba sort of un- illustrated, you know, the, uh, the, just how, 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 um, how disingenuous that argument was. And so as a result, it impacted on American citizens, American citizens who visit Cuba. And so I think that's why Trump was so, it was so important to the ruling class that Donald Trump, Donald Trump uh, be elected. Keep in mind, he didn't win the election. He was the, the electoral college voted him into power. He didn't win the popular vote. So it's clearly the ruling class understood that in order for us to maintain our hold over the, the imagination and the minds of American citizenry, we have to make sure we put an end to this, this trap of Cuba because Americans are under, beginning to become awake and they're beginning to understand too much in terms of how systems does impact on the way people behave and the way people think. Okay, Brother Moses, your response, and then we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to go to our sister, Ezele Haiti, because as we talk about the theme, this is your future, and well, resistance part two, I think we can learn a lot from the Haitian Revolution, and, and the brothers and sisters of Haiti who are still resisting a farm domination. So, Brother Moses, make your response. We're going to the station break, and then we can bring in our sister, uh, Ezele. We're going to talk a little bit and get an update on what's going on in Haiti. Go ahead, Brother Moses. I think what's been said has been correct. Uh, the, the the situation backfired on them. Um, the Cuban people and them, the U.S. people uh, see their their commonality, their humanity. They see that they see that that the Cubans have a rational and legal and logical system of government that takes care of the people and. Uh, and they learn they learn that the U.S. propaganda is just what it is, propaganda and, and not truth. And uh, so, you know, obviously something has to change. Uh, this, this situation couldn't continue in their minds, and so they come up with the Boltons and and uh, Trucker and all this propaganda about how how evil the the socialism is. Um, they never liked socialism. The capitalists have always been opposed to socialism from the Soviet Union. They're opposed to China. They're opposed to Korea. They're opposed to anybody uh, uh, who, who dares to attempt to to look out for the mass majority of their people, Zimbabwe, wherever, wherever socialist ideas come into play, they always oppose it. They try to demonize that 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 uh country and uh that leadership and and overthrow it. The regime changes the order as in Iraq or wherever. And so, you know, we we have to continue to uh to try to get the this travel ban uh lifted and uh and support the Cuban government and 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 its attempts to to uh, to help out its economy with tourism, and you know this is this is uh this is our duty as 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 socialists and uh and internationalists, and so you know we applaud the Cuban people and and we we say you know continue your your progressive work. Thank you. And on that note, listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Moon. We're going to pause for this call, so when we come back, we're going to Haiti. 
We're going to continue to remind you and talk about and keep Haiti on your mind. Because Haiti has made a great and continue to make a great contribution to African people, all of humanity. And we can't not only forget about Haiti, but we got to find ways to help our brothers and sisters in Haiti. And we're going to do an update with Sister Zilli when we come back from the station break. You are listening to Africa on the Moon. Fight, 
That's right. Apartheid haven't gone nowhere. It's still here. Not only do we have to fight against apartheid, but we have to fight against all oppressive systems and governments that support human beings. And on that note, as we continue to discuss our theme, This Is Your Future Without Existence, Part 2, we'd like to bring in our beloved sister, Sister Zeli Danto, who work with the Free Haitian Movement. And like always, we'd like to bring her in to give us an update and share with us a little bit about currently what is the reality of what's going on in Haiti and how we can participate. Because we understand Haiti is a very important country to the struggle and the formal progress of our people around the world. Haiti was the country that gave us in West Enfield what a democracy should be and have fought certainly revolutionarily, principally, on what a democracy should be. So when we talk about democracy, the first country should come to mind, we talk about the Western Hemisphere, must be Haiti. So Sister Izele, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Thank you so much for having me. Honor and respect to all of you, those who have spoken, Brother Moses, and um, your listeners. My name is Evely Danto. <clears throat> and I lead the Free Haiti Movement, and it is a um, hard job, hard work, but I was born with 200 years of containment in poverty and 300 years of enslavement, and the, you know, I posted in my Esley Network um, newsletter two things recently on July 4th as the United States celebrated its independence. And um, one I always put out since February 29th when the United States came and took uh, Haiti's democratically elected president is uh, Kwame Touré, who talks about how in 1803 Haiti uh, was the freest country in the world. It was the only country in the world that did not allow in slavery. It's the only country in the world that if you were enslaved anywhere in the world and you stepped foot on that on the land of Haiti, you would be free. I, I would suggest all those who have never seen Climate Brother Ture speak about Haiti, um, get on my mailing list and uh, go to YouTube and that video. The other piece that I send out every July <clears throat> 4th, is uh, Frederick Douglass, What to the Enslaved is the Fourth of July. He talks about how colonialism make men brutes and rob them of their liberty and work them without wages and keep them ignorant of their relationship with their fellow men and beat them with sticks and play them with... These are all the things that are happening right now in Haiti. Start them into obedience and submission. This Haiti is enslaved at the moment. And... Um, The saddest part about that equation are the black collaborators, the puppets that are put in or were put in by Obama and Mrs. Clinton that are today massacring the people in the manner of uh, Duvalier. They are back in power. They took out the democratically elected president, and they have come back. So we have the puppets. They are doing the biddings of the Western ambassadors, and I name their names. And I say to everyone, and I say to Haitians in particular, that we only need the soldiers. And at this point, 
there's no more talking to be done. There's no more exposing nothing to be exposed. I have been at this for a long time. Haitians have been at this for a long time, and we have exposed as much as we can about what our situation is and how we fight the invaders and how we are between Cuba and Venezuela and as the weakest link. And because of racism, we have no ally. Russia and even um, Latin America um, do not ally with us because we are black people. And as people celebrate Cuba and celebrate Venezuela, we want them to know that Free Haiti stands alone and has always stood alone because Latin America brought 11 Latin nations to join in to peacekeeping in Haiti. And those countries had more violence than Haiti ever had, Brazil, for instance. So we, um, I wrote very recently, no more talking. Our story is too old to rewrite, much less to keep living. Alasso. Alasso means attack. It is time for us to attack and go forward. For the people of La Saline who were massacred on November 13, 2018, by the current uh, government, uh, under, du- under the direction of Rogue UN trained Haitian police, and on behalf of the Duresh Euro puppet dictator in Haiti, his name is Jovenel Moïse, I say Alasso. For the Haitians fleeing the inferno of the core group of Western ambassadors, the current butchers of Haiti, you all will remember during the first occupation of Haiti, we called FDR the butcher of Haiti. Today, the butchers of Haiti are nine, <clears throat> and they make Haiti uh, uh, unlivable. For our children, our mothers, uh, who find themselves in Western detention, in sexual slavery, in humiliation abroad, going and walking through from Chile to Venezuela all the way up to San Diego, 11 nations, and to find themselves in Mexico and in the most humiliating of situations and tensions and their children taken away and nobody's talking about it. Everyone's talking about Central American. I say, alasso. For Desaline, Grantoya, Tonia, Pirat, Dread Wilmer, and too many black millions to cite, I say, alasso. Self-defense is a human right. And only the brave need to answer this call. Only the brave need to call themselves the black woman's children. Right now, we need tabula rasa. There's too much talking. We need to free Haiti. We need to free the black women's children in America. I watched Kamala Harris the other day talk about how uh, a mother makes a decision, whether she's coming from Central America, that she cannot live in that place anymore, and so she gives her children to a custodian to bring to America to freedom. And she got applause for that. And as she got that applause for that, I thought to myself, how stupid are Americans? How stupid are people to not understand that that mother that made this decision made that decision because the United States and senators like Kamala Harris maintain imperialism. And so I say, alasso. I know that Brother, you asked me to uh, talk about uh, July 6, 2005. I say his name because no one knows his name. His name is Emmanuel Dread Wilmer. 
On February 29, 2004, the United States, along with France and Canada, invaded Haiti. It was our bicentennial, the 200th year of our independence. And the European has no conscience, no forgiveness, no civility. He remembers that we beat his grand-grand-grands for slaving us for 300 years, and he came back on our bicentennial. And uh, there was one man, one black man, <clears throat> who took up arms against the United Nations, the U- U.S. Multinational Forces, and on February 29th. <clears throat> he lasted 17 months, and he was executed on July 6, 2005. And every year on July 6, we remember Emmanuel Dreadwomere and the men and women and children and babies who fought the U.N. occupation in Haiti. And I'll say two names. I'm remembering today Sonia Wolfis and her babies, Stanley and Nelson. They were shot dead in their beds by U.N. guns on July 6, 2006, while they were asleep as the United, United Nations, under, <clears throat> under the directions of the United States, decided that they were going to attack Dreadwell Mayor and his community without any regards to uh, this was a civilian uh, community. Uh, this was a, a community that was unarmed. And so on um, July 5th, excuse me, 6, 2005, uh, they systematically hunted down one lone black man. And this is why I do no more talking. I'm doing, I'm only talking now to um, Brother um, Lee because he's always supported me when I call him and I say, hey, I need some resources today or I can't do what I'm doing. He always comes true and I thank him for that. Few others do. Um, so now I just don't talk no more when they call me. But I'm doing this for Brother Lee. I'm doing it for Brother Bamboshi, too, who did answer the call when I asked him a few a few weeks ago to connect us and see if we could get some allies. Um, Dreadwell Mare was a young black man. He was outgunned and outnumbered. United Nations came in. They wanted the seaside territory on Cite Soleil where he lived and where there were 450,000 Haitians living. And the United States had decided it was time to get them out of that area. So they came in in 2004, and uh, they used overwhelming force. The world was asleep. I've written about this many, many, many times. Um, I I remember speaking to Dred Romero, and he thinking that because I'm, diaspora and I have connections and I'm a lawyer, perhaps I could find black men who would come and assist. Well, we put out the call and we got no answer. Um, Dreadwood Mayor and the Haitian people stood alone and we still stand alone. Everyone is talking. He died. He never left his community. He never attacked anyone, but they came to kill him. And in the name of Human rights, the United Nations sent in 
They put together 1,400 troops, multinational troops, so they can't say it's racist. They were multinational from everywhere in the world they came. They surrounded him, his community, uh, the NGOs, uh, non-for-profits, the Red Cross and those folks, um, that days before that Dred Wilmer was using uh, to cart out the wounded, they're the ones that gave up his location. So they're not partisan. They're not um, nonpartisan. And uh, so, anyways, they came into his community. Um, they could never say, you know, that he killed anyone. All he did was protect his community. Um, Fourteen hundred. Uh, troops surrounded it. They brought in two helicopters. They dropped bombs from the air, and they used their uh, uh, all their technology, and that's why they were end up killing uh, babies sleeping at night, like Stanley and Nelson Warmers. They expected, according you can all can find this out. It's out here according to the declassified Sutasolai massacre report. You can find it anywhere. They expanded 22,000 rounds in a sleeping community at 3 a.m. Uh, a thousand U.N. soldiers uh, surrounded the area. 440 went in. And that night, um, when I sounded the alarm and tried to get the um, major newspapers and the Pan-Africanists and the Nationalists, nobody answered. Dred um, Wimir died uh, along with untold uh, Cite Soleil uh, civilians. We have the pictures. They're all on our website. Um, so we remember why we fight. We remember those who die. And so today, 2019, in November, there was another massacre. And it is all to keep puppet Haitians and bourgeois Haitians in power to keep the, the Middle Eastern oligarchy in Haiti, who are the billionaires of the Caribbean, their names are, they're called the mercenary families. They're the Bijos, the Mers, the Akras, the Brants. They come from the Middle East, just like in American cities. They come from Korea, South Korea. They come from the Arab nations. They come from other places in the United States, give them um, access to communities, and they do whatever they want, and that's what's happening to us. So for those folks, I say to Kamala Harris when she says that um, that mother made a decision um, because her children could not live wherever it was in Central America or Mexico, they could not live. It's because of U.S. imperialism, and it's because of what the United States does to places like Haiti where they do regime change and get rid of um, good leaders and put in corrupt money launderers and, and rapists and and all kinds of um, uh, men who hate women and um, like the ones we have in Haiti, they call themselves the ball party. Um, so that's the missing part in this immigration debate um, that no one talks about. And it is sad for all of us black people that we can today quote Frederick Douglass on the 4th of July 
and say that the United States is the most evil place, the most brutal place in terms of how it treats uh, the black woman's children. Um, so we can continue to talk or we can say it's no more talking. Okay, thank you, Sister Zilli. I just let my panelists may have a few comments or questions. And like always, we'd like to thank you for giving us an update, what's going on. And before you leave, can you quickly tell the people again about your your, your website, how they can support you all, how they can become a member in terms of supporting the work that you do? Uh, Ezli Dantal. E R Z I L I D A N T O at yahoo.com is my email. My website is E Z I L I D A N T O dot com. You can also find me on the Free Haiti Movement on Facebook, or you can find me on um, YouTube. Um, if you want to make a donation, you can go to the website. You'll see where there is a, a, a space to make a donation to help the Free Haiti Movement. I run the Free Haiti Movement, the um, Haitian Lawyers Leadership Network, and um, a, a, a water project, which is now on hold because we, we don't have the money to to continue it. So um, that's it. That's my information. Okay. Brother Haki, your comments or questions to Sister Izzili? Yeah, a statement and a, a quick question. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, listen, and um, it, it, it seems to me that, um, you know, um, this, is, uh, this is very disheartening in terms of the, the pro- lack of progress that's being made in terms of addressing systemic ears that have impacted African people throughout the world, in particular Haiti. Uh, but the thing is that I think, you know, one of the things I always say is that, you know, um, it is a protracted struggle. And, uh, you know, nothing moves as fast as we would like. Uh, just to give some example, in terms of in America, uh, it's very difficult, extremely difficult, in terms of, you know, just even engaging in, in, in certain um, certain programs, simply because the people uh, don't want to deal with certain kind of ideas. And we're talking about progressive people. So, you know, so this, this, this kind of... Um, uh, indifference toward information uh, is not uh, only pertains to the issue of, of, of Haiti, but also uh, Africans, you know, throughout the diaspora. So the only thing we can do is keep in mind that this is a protracted struggle, and 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 and, and understand, you know, there'll be highs and lows in terms of you know you know struggle, and sometimes you know you succeed and in, in, in succeed, and other times you don't. It's just your core reality, um, you know. Um, you know, and the reason I say this is because one of the things is that, you know, when, when, you, when, you, when you talk about, listen, let's, let us not uh, talk, let us do action. Well, you know, that that's rhetorically, that sounds good. But the problem is that, you know, you can't do anything in isolation. And until people in mass begin to understand what the hell is going on, there's nothing you can do as an individual. I mean, that's just called reality. And as such, we've got to have some patience in terms of understanding that it's going to take people some time in terms of understanding reality. And we appreciate the fact that you come on and talk about what happened in Haiti because this is information that people don't talk about a lot, simply because it's out of sight, out of mind, and so people tend not to talk a lot about Haiti, particularly those individuals who probably don't even know where Haiti is. So, you know, so I simply say that, you say, you know, just hang in there, you know, don't give up, don't give up the fight, I know you won't, but, you know, continue to hang in there despite, you know, the difficulty in terms of, you know, achieving success. 
because we're going to win it, no question about that. Um, but it's, it's, it's a protracted struggle, and it's, it's, the, the work goes on. Uh, but now my question is this. Um, the Lebanese in, 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 the, in the country, um, what is the relationship in terms of the Lebanese and the, the, the Haitian people? Uh, I read a lot in terms of a contentious relationship, but you, since you're from there, you know more about it than I do. Could you explain a little about the relationship between the Haitians and the uh, Lebanese community there in Haiti? The middle, yes, I will. Uh, the um, early on, the uh, the European was trying to figure out how to destroy the Haitian Revolution. And they had the mulattoes. And they wanted to replace the mulattoes with a different sort of mulatto, one that they control and they, that did not have connection to the Haitian Revolution. So the original mulattoes were used to, the, to um, murder um, Haiti's founding father and the black generals. And then around... Um, when the Ottoman Empire fell and the Europeans were dividing the spoils of that war, they used Haiti as a space where they would give the <clears throat> uh, families of soldiers or others that they had co-opted a life. This is how the U.S. runs its policy. They will, they will find a... a, 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 a a very strong soldier, let's say in Lebanon, and they say, you know, essentially I own you. You will do what I want you to do in terms of taking down your people on my behalf. Um, but as you fight that war, as you do that, I will let you have your younger brother, um, you know, immigrate to the United States and have a, have a life. One part of your family can live. This is what they do. This is what they do for South Koreans. This is what they do for uh, 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 East Indians. This is what they do. And so a group of um, Jewish and Lebanese Christians who were being persecuted after the fall of the uh, Ottoman Empire came to Haiti. And they became, you know, they came to Haiti very poor without anything. They used to be traders going to the various um, uh, uh, hinterlands. But they would marry into the mulatto families, of course, because black people, especially black males, are so retarded. They have to have these light-skinned white folks. And so they married into the, 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 the mulatto families, married into Haiti, or they, you know, um, became Haitian um, through that process, and today, um, for instance, um, Gilbert Bijou and his family have been here since I think 1889, 1900s. They are the richest people in the Caribbean um, because they use, they still belong to the nations that they came from. They carry more than one passport. They don't really consider themselves Haitians, but when when it it's like affirmative action, you know, whenever there's a benefit to white women, they'll find a way to, to be a minority. Um, so if there's a benefit, the Lebanese, the Syrians, and the Jewish 
um, uh, uh, folks that are in Haiti are Haitian. They run the economic routes in Haiti, the economic doors. They run the ports and the consulates where, for instance, Bijou, Gilbert Bijou and his family are the honorary consul for the for the nation of Israel in Haiti. You can imagine what sort of deal that they can do with that title and with that franchise. Certain other families have had for generations, I'm talking about, you know, five generations, they were the consul for Germany or they were the consul for France or they were you know, within Haiti. While these other stupid Haitian Negroes who fight to become president, these others are running the economic doors of how Haiti is actually sustained. So I always say to the Haitian diaspora, do not be retarded like this. If you want to change Haiti, look at who owns the ports, look at the consulates, look at the places where, because um, uh, immigration won't let you into other you know, countries if you're Haitian, but if you are close to, you know, the president or, or those who are in power, you know, don't try to become um, parliamentarian or whatever. Run one of those consulates because those nations would give, let's say, money to the consulates. You go in, you get your visas. And these people have dip- diplomatic pouches. They come into Haiti with all kinds of things. And what they do come in with and the reason that they control Haiti is that uh, Israel provides, for instance, Gilbert Bijou and those others who control these areas from the Middle East, like the the Lebanese and the Syrians, they give them guns. And so while my people um, are naked in the streets with nothing in their hands, um, looking for life and, and, and demonstrating, these others will then, you know, buy... Uh, certain Haitians to go kill them and give them the guns and those that is what the the these foreigners do and that's why um, it's time to no longer talk um, at Free Haiti we say um, here is the names of the Western ambassadors who every time the, United, the, the Haitian people go out into the street and they say that this puppet government doesn't represent us, we are dying, we can't live, we don't have any sort of resources, um, they will come out and they will say things like, the only way you can get rid of a president is through elections. And then, of course, they, um, they rig the elections. And I want to say their name. For these, these nine people who are, and this is what I am doing, this is what I can do, and this is what I do do, I point to the enemy and I say that the names of the core gang of international terrorists, terror, terrorists, butchers, and cannibals in Haiti must be blasted everywhere. Their families, friends, children, grandchildren, private, com- private company affiliations, and homeland communities must know their names and their naked criminality in Haiti. The core group in Haiti are... The U.S. ambassador, her name is Michelle Sisson. The secretary general of the United Nations, his name is Antonio Guterres. The ambassador to Germany, his name is Memfred Oster. 
the ambassador to Brazil, his name is Jose Luis Machado Costa. The ambassador to Canada, his name is André Freneta. <laughs> the ambassador to France, his name is Jose Gomez. The representative of Spain, his name is Hubert Labert. The secretary general of the Organization of American States, his name is Louis Magro. And the uh, president of the European Union, his name is Jean-Claude Jochner. And finally, and most importantly, who always tied is his name, his hand, the Pope, and his representative is the Apostolic Nuncio. I'm speaking to Haitians listening to me. These are the people you go after in Haiti. These are the people who uh, are keeping you um, um, in um, slavery. And then, of course, the oligarchs. The Bijos, Merv, Accra, the mercenary families that control all the economic, 98% of the wealth in, in, in Haiti is owned by these billionaires of the Caribbean. And they, they have such power that the media never refers to them. They only refers to the low pedestrian Haitian who is paid to become X, Y, and Z. But none. So we at Free Haiti, we go at the, the, the oligarchs in the Western ambassadors that maintain imperialism in Haiti. Brother Moses, your question or comments? Thank you. Thank you for being on, on, on tonight. It's very educational. I appreciate your knowledge and your dedication to the struggle. Uh, I don't know if I have any questions or, or the, the situation in Haiti. I mean, at the, like they said, the first democracy on in the Western Hemisphere, I mean, when the U.S. was institutionalizing slavery and uh, it becoming the counter-revolution of 1776, as they say, and, uh, you know, Haitian was blazing the trail. And, you know, it is, it is a, a tragedy that, that there had not been a strong socialist uh, movement that would that should take power on, uh, and I think that's what you're working on. Uh, uh, but like you know, the people of Haiti, you know, are are, are courageous people, and, and and we need to recognize their role in history. And uh, I thank you for pointing out the situation and the and the. The Robert Burns that are there, and uh, I just appreciate your, your your commitment to this struggle. Thank you. Honor and respect, um, and thank you, Brother Moses. I, you mentioned something. I'm always so um, involved in the um, the struggle that I never really do have a chance to speak to people about what is unique about Haiti. We talked about the socialist movement. And I contend that that dead man called Marx, <clears throat> who came up with some of these uh, theories and so forth, took them from Africans. Haiti has a system that is called the LACU. Uh, it is uh, the last time a Haitian was able to um, find, um, you know, how many LACUs are in Haiti. LACU are, are, are family compounds. 
um, Laku um, are family compounds where Haitians live and come from. And innately, it, it has this. It, it's not socialism in the in the in the traditional way. It's both capitalism and socialism at the same time. It is a mixture, but it is where a fa- a family. Um, when a child is born, a piece of land is put aside. Um, that child always has a home. The family always is living in that compound, the Laku. In the Laku of my grandfather right now, um, we go back, you know, more than 200 years before the Haitian Revolution. And we have um, the ancestors and their remains. You know, you can go in to one of my um, ancestors, one of my aunts, um, you know, houses, and you could see um, the oral history going back to when that African um, came from Africa and when the, um, the uh, African who was already in Haiti um, met up with that African um, to start the Leonids that I come from because, you know, there were blacks in Haiti before the European um, um, started his new world. And so our story goes back, and our story is preserved in the Lacus. It's preserved in the, our story that you won't find um, anywhere. I, I'm, I'm always so into the struggle. I don't have time to write about these things. But there's four concepts I will leave you with um, for you to understand um, who you are, what you are, and what you have. So the Laku, like I said, is a family compound and is a tradition of Africans. Um, and it was a tradition of the caracols and the Guaninis and the other um, cultures that were in Haiti before the Europeans, not just what they call the Tainos. Um um, and then there's a concept called viv, which means to live, that you have the right to live, that if you don't have food, you know, your neighbor has it, you have the right to live and to be able to share. There's something called kombit in Haiti, which is a, um, uh, it's like shared work so that a, a group of the whole community comes together and builds house, and they have the drums and the songs and the dances going while they're doing it and work is a different thing. Like work is done to a song and to a um, a group of um, musicians. These were the ways that we traveled and the path of, of 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 this earth before the new world began. So combit, la cou, and vive. Um, uh, my grandmothers, for instance, um, would walk from 4 a.m. to I'm sorry, from 12 o'clock to 4, 4 a.m. to get to the market with food that was grown by by them in their own laku, and each laku would have a field attached to it, and each family would get a chance to uh, uh, work that field and bring in the food, and, and it would be shared within the laku. Um, like I said, I think it was like in the 80s, someone uh, uh, counted, I think they counted 172 Laku in Haiti. But you won't learn any of this from what they show you about Haiti. Haiti is 70% agrarian farmers living in Lacus. Um But you won't learn that from the European who um, is, is determined 
um, as the weakest link between two that horseshoe between Venezuela and Cuba. Haiti's just their uh, military base where they they can then go and attack those two places. And um, while they um, cart out our resources, and everybody knows I'm always talking about how uh, 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 the story of the of the the planet is changed by what is in Haiti. There is, like I said, 66 million years ago, an asteroid landed in this space. And those that remain is the mountains in Haiti. And it's called Iridium, and it's found nowhere else in the world, and we are being robbed blind of it. Um, 45 million per ton is what Iridium is worth. So these are the things that I'm sure that you're not learning. And the United States also, of course, built its largest U.S. embassy in the Western Hemisphere in Haiti in two, after 2004. Of course, no one's going to tell you that except pre-Haiti. And so we say it, we talk about it. Um, and and the brother who talked about um, holding on and an individual can't, like I said, you know, I was born to this struggle. I, I have no other, um, I know no other no, uh, n- nothing else but the struggle. Um, but I came to win, and I say that to my soldiers on the ground. I say that to all of, to anybody who's listening. Um, um, there is no more time left. We have to end time, if if need be, so the black woman's child could be free. So, Zilly, can you quickly, just quickly, uh, talk about? The tactic that they are using to not allow the farmers and the prisons to be able to grow and develop their own food. Otherwise, they're trying to create or have created job insecurity. I mean, food insecurity and starving the people out. Sure. Um, so, um, you know, the European comes from a space where their inhumanity started with their own people where they used to um, starve out the serfs. Well, they do that um, as a matter of policy. So um, Cité Soleil, where Dred Wilmer, Emmanuel Dred Wilmer, I say his name and honor him, not looking to turn his spirit around. He's done his part. Um, where he came from, uh, uh, Haiti was the first space in the 1980s and late 70s where the United States, when it decided to um, um, not pay minimum wage in America and, and outsource its jobs, it was the first place that they had like those free, free trade zones, and it was in Cité Soleil. And at that time, they called it Cité Simon, who was the wife of uh, Duvalier. And, and, and so they pushed the farmers from their land and told them that this that they they needed to be wage workers, um, and that you know they were working. Like you know, you see the the Bretton Woods organizations, like the United Nations, uh, all of those nations that Free Haiti um, has declared, we will take down. We will take down the the the. the the United Nations, we will take down the World Bank, the IMF, and all those Bretton Woods organizations, the post-World War II powers put together to maintain a new uh, way of colonialism um, by making it seem like um, there's some sort of democracy at the UN when only you know five people have a, a, a veto right. 
But essentially what they did was push millions of Haitians off their lands. Of course, they took those lands because those lands had resources, like I told you, the uranium, the gold, the platinum, the uranium, all of that stuff that they're taking out of Haiti because Haiti is a bill, a, more than a billion years old, and it's the it, it, Haiti along with Cuba, the landmass that was um, uh, above ground um, after the the last great deluge. Um, before anything else, and and so he has all these resources and so forth. So anyway, you, you they, when they took the people off the land, um, they put them in these sweatshops, and then like in the 80s when the uh, 87 and so forth when the Berlin Wall Wall fall, they decided that the 20 cents they were giving them per hour was too much, and they can go to China and give them two cents, ten cents. So when they took those jobs out, they left the slums of Cité Soleil. And that's where Emmanuel Joel Rimea came from, and that's what actually gave President Aristide his base because these were disaffected people who no longer had their land, who were, uh, no longer had a job, and they had no way of making a living, and they wanted a, a, a government that would look after their own interests. But um, when Aristide was brought when Aristide was taken out by Bush, the father, um, uh, Clinton brought him back. And as a condition for bringing him back, they, Haiti used to protect, even under Duvalier, the, the, the worst of, of the worst in terms of dictator, used to protect its local market. So if you're a nation and you, you don't protect your local market, foreigners can come in and dump their goods and then while you have 70% farmers, they go to market with their goods, let's say rice, and the rice from America, which Haitians call Miami rice, even though it comes from Arkansas in the Midwest, that rice becomes cheaper than the rice my grand-grand would make or the coffee she would make in her lacou, and that she had like 200 years of like bringing to the market, all of a sudden, um, uh, as a condition for bringing Aristide back, Bill Clinton required that with free trade, so-called, that that Haiti um, um, no longer protected its local market and, 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 and erased the tariff, which was, I think, 25% or something, on goods that were imported which allowed to the protection. Now, um, so Haiti uh, lost uh, 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 its food sovereignty. It used to be able to, uh, 30 years ago, uh, the, the farmers in the our breadbasket of Haiti were able to feed the entire nation. But with those laws that the Clintons came into, and it started, of course, before Clinton, but Clinton specifically um, 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 pushed uh, for Aristide to 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 do that neoliberal policy where they was free trade and that meant that there was no local protection for local manufacturers, local distributors, and local produ- uh, producers. So those people um, um, were hurt by, especially since, for instance, American um, rice growers and American Southerners, you know, as a as a as a what do you call that as a as a as a history from 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 when they used to you know take out 
you know, after after the Civil War, the United States essentially, as a way to help the plantations in America, you know, they they would give them subsidies. You know, even today, big agra gets subsidies, it's, and so subsidized American rice were, that were dumped into Haiti at a lower price than the market, and it destroy our food sovereignty. And I think in 2009, when that ridiculous Mr. Clinton came in, he apologized for destroying Haiti's food sovereignty and creating famine. But the perfidity, the, 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 I don't have the words, but the hatefulness of these devils is that at the same time that he was apologizing, right, and stupid Negroes are like, you know, apologize, his wife, under Obama, was bringing in as a gift for the earthquake Monsanto seeds. Monsanto seeds mean when the Haitian farmer plants that seed, they own it because it, they own they own the um, intellectual property of that seed. So it's not a domestic seed, and so if you can't pay for the seed of the crop, you lose your land. And that's who they are and what that's what they do. And that's the story of um, how they took out our uh, food sovereignty. And this is not just to Haiti. They've done this everywhere. Well, Sister Lisa, I can thank you for giving us an update on the reality of what's going on in Haiti. And like we said, we can't have a embargo against information when it comes to our people because what information we definitely won't be in a position to think, and we're going to do all that we can to ensure our people that Haiti cannot stand alone. And we'd just like to thank you for your ongoing work and our struggle is one. So we'll stay in touch, and one more time, how can they support you again? Uh, uh, please go to my website, uh, com. Make a donation to, to support the work. I would really appreciate it. Um, um, I have a Patreon account. You can also go there. Just put Esri Dantar on Patreon. You can go to my um, YouTube. Um, please watch the videos. I think I'm going to try to do more lives, but I just don't have the chance to do that. But, um, you know, just if you can't do the struggle and you know there are people doing the struggle, support those people because it costs. Thank you very much, Brother Lee. I love you for having me. I, um, I want to thank Brother, I think, Memboshi also for um, taking the call the other day. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, honor and respect. And much respect and love to you, Elsa. So we thank you again. And to the listening audience, the struggle continue. We're going to pause for a quick station break. And when we come back, we do our final thoughts for tonight. You are listening to Africa on the Move.
Yes. Um, uh, no, thank you. I, I, I want to support your program. Uh, I want to support all your audience that follow you and listen to you. Um, this is really important that we continue to put out the information um, in the voices of the voiceless. So thank you so much for having me. And, um, you know, I don't really know exactly what to say, except at this point in Haiti, we have... Um, the people are on the streets, they're dying, they say they are going to take down this puppet government any means necessary. The various uh, opposition leaders, uh, instead of um, looking for allies like we were looking for uh, Maduro and Russia, um, because we know that without uh, um, real force like money, media, military, it's all talk, 
and I am done with all of that. We need real force in order to do what we need to do. And there's only two choices. We either find that ally that the European um, uh, terrorists uh, 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 have some sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, can counter them. You know, they play their games, these Eurasians, and sometimes you have to use them against each other. Or, um, as I say to Haitians, we have to go inside fast, that's the spirit of Desalines and the traditional spirit of the African warrior uh, father, the African warrior soldier, and find Danto, which is representative of the warrior mother. I say to Haitians, you have to find Ogu and Danto within you. I'm calling all, all Haitian women. Um, August 14th is coming. That's the beginning of the Haitian Revolution, decades, centuries ago. Um, and it's coming, and I'm looking for Dantal. Ogu better come out. We need to go inside and find the strength and take this thing down. That's the time. Uh, if we can't find allies, the only thing we can do is go to the ancestors. That's what I can say, because that's what I'm doing. Okay, we thank you, Sister Zelie, for your contribution to today's program. And we now move to Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Moses. Well, I want to thank you once again for allowing me to put my little two cents in. Um, I think, you know, it's been interesting. I, I I definitely am learning more and more about Haiti, and I think the struggle, you know, uh, for Africans and Pan-Africanists, and, you know, Haiti is a key, a key in that struggle in that it was the first democracy, and uh, they have shown their courageousness, and we need to support that struggle, uh, and uh, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. And we thank you as well, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. And Brother Haki, your final thoughts and announcements for tonight. Yeah, first announcements. Uh, African Women Association will be going to Cuba, and the trip takes place October 31st and November 6th. More information, we ask you to give us a call at 804 804- Five four nine seven four nine two, or area code two zero two seven one four nine four three five, or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail dot com. And my final statement for tonight is, you know, you know, and listen to yes, uh, Brother Africa, uh, she sort of underscores the complexity of the struggle. Uh, one of the things when we talk about the injustice perpetrated against our people. We've got to understand the role that, that um, legal institutions play in terms of facilitating that injustice. Uh, if we're serious about changing this, first and foremost, we must understand how the system operates. We have to. We can no longer, we can ill afford to take the position, I don't want to know. We must understand how the system operates. And understanding how the system operates, we can then deconstruct it and do what we have to do in terms of bringing about a different and new paradigm. But clearly, uh, you know, we're in, we're in very, very trouble. Humanity is in trouble. Uh, those individuals, you know, uh, in the Western world, along with their puppets, uh, including those in Saudi Arabia, those in Africa, those in Central and South American and the Caribbean, uh, play also part in terms of contributing to the, to, you know, the destruction of humanity. For those of us who are pro-humane, those who understand the importance in terms of uplifting humanity, we have to work together. We have to fight. And uh, there's no getting the way around that. The fight can only come about once we understand exactly what we're fighting against. 
So I encourage people everywhere, you know, those who truly love humanity, uh, you know, to foment those kind of relationships among, you know, like-minded people around the world who are committed to a different paradigm, a new and more um, holistic way of life. Uh, it's the only thing that's going to save humanity. Uh, having said that, as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, and everyone have a good night. And we thank you, Brother Haki, for your contributions tonight. I'd like to thank our guests and all our listening audience for joining Africa on the Move tonight. And we'd like just to remind you that, remember, while information you cannot think and while organizations you cannot think clearly as oppressed people, the only weapon that you have that will free you is the weapon of organization. I encourage you to get organized, and we need to wake up the unconscious. When you're unconscious, you are no more than a someone who is living but is dead at the same time. So on that note, what we want to do is leave you a message from Brother Kwame Ture and speak to the issue of the conscious versus the unconscious. And we'll see you next week on Africa on the moon. Of this brother. And he's still blazing a trail, evil to death. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country, our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Kwame Ture. As he comes down, let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966 when he hollered, Black Power! Black power, 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 black power. Black power, black power. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right, brother Kwame Ture, let's give it up, brother Kwame Ture.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three, members of, uh, three other members of our Central Committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All-African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who has uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated in it were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. 
Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean, making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland. Nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious, but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer, but being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America, without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt, the most loved. He could not become president of the Baptist, National Baptist Association, a convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964, when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized but he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. 
Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there, I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, 
every African in the world inside our body. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <clears throat> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different. They have such different tastes, such different tra-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now, what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be, all of us, so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say, just run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference, we said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. <laughs> and certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. 
You African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news, those who's running for president can't. It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody played but them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there, and a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, it, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. 
It is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. Watch their movement. The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew as a little girl, I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibilities to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This united front is a very simple thing now. A very simple task. 
All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party's been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a United Front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time. This was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan, Jordan, Jordan? The one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was jo I'm sorry. Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something and the enemy will knock it down and you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together. A lot of work. A lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> And we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat. We licked our wounds. We pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life. Really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him. Uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, 
I told him, I think I have everything careful. I I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Consler, and I'm sure Bill Consler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Consler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Consler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and when I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, uh, Consler was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me, but I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All-African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first... Uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now I'm blessed to let you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years, and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, 1982, I, our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, because... Uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti-Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend. But the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming and, you know, he's sentimental. Minister can quote Bibles so he can sit down with preachers and all these others, etc. So after observing his movements, uh, the African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit... Uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front. Of course, it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking. I hadn't seen him in some time, and uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, was, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his force had been coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Mohammed Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Mohammed Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Mohammed Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Here, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. 
By 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? It was 1984. Well, 83 was announced. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan, our party people in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency. And he was under a lot of threats, you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already, he wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all that even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> he's rough, you know, he's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said... So now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever, he's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, you're not, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully, Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Mohammed Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, you old people, so before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago, yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. They ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't bite his tongue for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded Honorable uh, Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, son, 
He said, the devil wants you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, the devil's out to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you must be careful. I said, yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a dying, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now. I have more experience. So he said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your, disp the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy. I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them, really. I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And I, you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's just what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, you see everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me from the 60s. You will look and you will see them. So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be President of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be President of America. Well, he saw that uh, his clever trick didn't go so well. So he backed up again. He said, well, uh, what do you think about the alliance? I said, it's a great mistake. He said, why? I said, because uh, Jesse Jackson is a Democrat first and foremost. The Democratic Party jumps to the tunes of the Zionists. While the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a confrontational organization and confronted Zionism outright, the first place I read about the Palestinian struggle in this country was in the Mohammed Speaks newspaper. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed taught me about Palestine when no left-wing paper in this country did. And they talk about nationalism is chauvinism. Look at them. I saw pictures of Malcolm X shaking the hands of PLO representatives when the PLO was first organized in 1964 in Mohammed Speaks. In Mohammed Speaks. Therefore, I told him, I said, the Zionists, they hate us, but they know you the first. <laughs> so what I'm worried about is when they spoil the union and it splits. You understand? Which side of the fence you gonna be on? Because I know Jesse gonna be with the Zionists. Because that's the Democratic Party. I'm just brutally honest with you. I'm telling you exactly what was said between us. We had a very frank discussion. After that discussion, I told him, what about the African United Front? He said, it's still good. Of course, me, myself, I knew with the thing with Jesse, it was problems. But in spite of obstacles, you must do your work. In spite of obstacles, you must persevere. I said, well, I want you to meet uh, Jesse ja Jex, uh, John Jacobs of the Urban League. He said, I've never met him. I said, I'd like you to meet him. He said, you can arrange a meeting? Will he meet with me? I said, yeah, I can arrange a meeting. He'll meet with you. I arranged a meeting at Johnny Jacobs' uh, office here in New York, in Manhattan. The first time they met each other, I just sat in the background, talk, talk, talk. So well did our meeting go that Minister Louis Farrakhan and Johnny Jacobs signed a letter that day issuing a call for a united front among the political organizations in this country. 
We have it in our files. When the time comes, we will demonstrate this. The Urban League has a copy, Farrakhan has a copy, and Major Thatcher, Thatcher, Hatcher, Hatcher, <laughs> Hatcher from Gary has a copy because at that time he was head of the mayors and we were working with him, of course. Uh, of course, I went back to Africa. It didn't take me long before I heard all this nonsense about gutter religion, Judaism, gutter, or dirty religion, or whatever, whatever, and uh, Jesse having to uh, split from Farrakhan, and you know what happened. Of course, I knew it would happen. But when we were with uh, Jacobs, Minister Farrakhan and myself, one of the things we'd read upon was that we must have the phone numbers of each other. They didn't even have each other's phone numbers. And we must have the house phone numbers. So that when we hear something on the radio that Farrakhan said this about Jacobs, before Jacobs attacks Farrakhan, Jacob will call Farrakhan and see if what the paper says is true. We agreed to this. We did agree to this. Of course, this was not written in the letter. This was a verbal commitment.